Kirai and Koku immigrated to Malifaux, desperate to change her fate. Although very young, she left the Three Kingdoms determined to forge a life for herself and help her family members remaining behind. Making her way around the globe, penniless and alone, then procuring passage through the breach stands as a testament to her perseverance. Stepping off the train, she looked upon the faces of other settlers, each one a mixture of nervousness and hope at the prospect of forging a new life in a new world. Each settler thought they had found a way to defy the destiny that fate had written for them. Sadly, Kirai found that fate is not easily defied. She struggled, the need to survive overcoming her pride when she took work as one of the upper parlor girls at the Kui and Gong. She quickly became known to high-ranking guild officials who pulled strings and helped her find employment as a groundskeeper for the Governor General. Not long after, the Governor General contracted the Qi and Gong to provide an escort for only his son Francis to a political gawa. Because of her familiarity with the guild, they chose Kirai for Francis. The Governor General never expected Kirai and his son to fall so quickly or so deeply in love after their evening together. The pair was inseparable, but their love could not last. Nothing in the city escapes the Governor General's notice, his son's activities in particular. And during the dishonor of his son in a relationship with a mere groundskeeper was more than he would tolerate, but being in love with a whore pushed him to remove her from his son's life permanently. The ring given to Karai by her lover became the symbol of fate's most grotesque humor. Somehow, chosen as a vessel for a power far beyond her own, when it was slipped on her finger, she was set upon a far greater and more sinister path than she could have ever imagined. Francis was taken from her in a storm of lead and violence as she fled for her life. She had nowhere to go, no one to help her, but Malifaux's capricious ether provides opportunities for many miraculous and unexpected twists. Without realizing it, Kirai found the incredible ability to reach into the ether and summon forth not the spiritual energy other arcane masters manipulated, but the spirits themselves, giving them shape from the stories and legends of her youth. Now desperate to control her fledgling power, she is determined to find Francis's spirit within the endless gulf of the ether, as she was determined to find a life for herself this side of the breach. Francis died. As his lifeblood pumped onto the dingy hotel room floor that day, Francis watched the love of his life, the woman he swore himself to eternally, escape thanks to his sacrifice. After that, he knew nothing save the aching loss of his final separation from Kirai. 
For a time, his spirit drifted, caught in etheric currents and eddies, mingling with other spiritual energies. He could sense some were new to the ether, as he was, while others had drifted along for centuries. All seemed to be losing themselves to the ether, their forms slowly unraveling and dissipating to mingle with other spirits similarly unraveled. Francis watched these dissolutions closely. When would he start to unravel as they were? Had he already? What memories would be the first to fade? And would he even realize there were gaps? How could he hold on to his memories of his Qingren? He focused on her face, her scent, the color of her eyes, and he realized how he could fight the tides seeking to wash him away. He had to fight. Those spirits fading around him had given up. They were letting the ether claim them bit by bit. Only by staying focused on what he loved most could he remain himself. Maybe he could stay afloat long enough to find Kirai. If not, he mused sadly, he may be able to hold on until she came to join him. The Ikiro is a spiritual anomaly. In almost all cases, spiritual manifestation results as residual soul energy cannot find its way to join the vast maelstrom in the ether regions beyond Malifaux and Earth. The Ikiro is still very attached to the world of the living because it is the living soul of Kirai and Koku. It may never be understood how Kirai developed the ability to call forth her spirit in the physical world. Nicodem studies her, hoping she may infuse his risen corpses with better autonomous spirits that have thoughts and wills of their own to make them more fearsome warriors to contend with. His view of the Ikiro is that it was first called upon to carry out the vengeance that Kirai desperately wanted but could never fulfill. He was mostly correct. The Ikiro is a powerful embodiment of anger and revenge that cannot be sated until it has found vengeance for the atrocities done to Kirai. However, unknown to him, and even to Kirai, is a deeper mystery to its origin and purpose. Linked somehow to an ancient Gorgon spirit, the Ikiro is an unknown harbinger for a coming conflict involving great beings long forgotten that will embroil the young Kirai and Koku in ways she could never imagine. Time will tell if the Ikiro remains until it has completed its task of vengeance or if its purpose is tied to some greater task. Appearing as a bony elderly woman bearing a knife and a lantern, the Datsuaba visits sinners to judge their lives, ready to weigh the character and souls of the righteous and the wicked. She watches over the gateway between life and death, measuring everyone she meets along the way to determine who can move on and who is to be denied, sent back to atone for their crimes. Corrupted by Malifaux's power, the spirit that once kindly waited for the dead to pass on now seeks out the living, wishing to hasten their journey to judgment in the afterlife. Her attacks seek to evaluate a man's bravery, his will against her terrifying visage. She strips the clothing and skin off those she slays, weighing each to determine the value of their soul. Those she finds lacking, she banishes to the soul stones, powering her lantern. Souls she deems worthy, she releases their energy, dissipating and mingling with the ever-present ether. The Datsuaba hunts other spirits as well. In her damaged state, she imagines each of these spirits is attempting to escape her judgment, and she desperately wants to appropriately judge them before they can get away. 
Spirits caught by the Datsuaba are weighed harshly, most being trapped, fueling the glow of her lantern. In her desperate state, Kirai had no idea what she was unleashing upon Malifaux. The Datsuaba sees Kirai as her mistress and pays proper fealty to her. She returns regularly to Kirai, giving her a fair share of the soul stones she has collected from sinners. Despite Kirai's protests, the Datsuaba continues to return with a lantern full of soul stones, each one representing a life she has taken, thanks to Kirai. Silent specters, the Onryo, wander Malifaux's nights in search of release from their pain. Hidden behind perfect alabaster masks, their faces writhe in unending torment, betrayal, and loss, forever gnawing at their souls. Each Onryo is trapped in its own personal hell. Their anger was such at the time of their death that they were forever bound to the mortal plane, doomed to eternally wander in search of peace they can never attain. Kirai's connection to the spirit world has forced several Onryo to manifest. These spirits were trapped in the ether without form until she unwittingly called them to her through her singular talent, demanding they bring violence down on the men who wronged her. Needing little more encouragement than that, the Onryo traveled, the conduit through which they could take shape, answering her unspoken plea. To come across an Onryo is to find death. Their only succor from eternal suffering is the infliction of that same suffering onto others. No joy is to be gained from what they do to the living. It simply serves as a distraction, allowing them a few minutes' respite before the horrible events which led to their damnation fill their minds once again. The semi-sentient wisps of spiritual energy are drawn to Karai. Her spiritual awakening shone like a beacon in the ether, pulling any spirit which witnessed it. Seishin that drifted too close were snared by her power, unable to escape its grasp. Some fought against this, their individual flames extinguished in the blink of an eye, while other Seishin accepted their fate. As Kirai learned to command the forces at her disposal, she found Seishin to be useful allies. She could draw upon them to bolster her power as well as the power of other spirits around them. She quickly learned that pushing a Seishin too hard was akin to poking a soap bubble, too much pressure, and the bubble would pop. As she honed her talents, she found she could gently coax Seishin to follow her commands without expending all of its energy, or having it collapse under the withering force of her psyche. Kirai also uses Seishin as spiritual messengers. The messages they carry are short, but she has had some success with ordering them to deliver information across Malifaux. Their deliveries are in constant jeopardy from malevolent spirits prompting her to tie a bit of her own spiritual energy to each when they leave. Although Kirai cannot aid them directly, her energy helps insulate the Seishin from assault, as well as informs her when they are consumed by another spirit. Or worse. Something is amiss in the city's morgue. 
Bodies continue to disappear, despite the efforts of Dr. McMorning and his capable assistant Sebastian to keep them where they belong. Corpses vanish from locked rooms, are discovered missing from gurneys in the morgue's secure hallways. Some have even disappeared before being handed over to the good doctor's care. Investigators are baffled by the disappearances, but suspicion has fallen firmly on Dr. McMorning's shoulders, selling his years of dedicated service to the guild. His superiors hope the culprit is apprehended soon and the entire business can be put behind them. Unfortunately for the guild, Mr. McMorning is the exact reason for this spat of disappearances. Unable to resist the lure of necromantic power, McMorning has been experimenting with a number of bodies under his charge, reanimating the occasional corpse on company time. Many of these undead monstrosities are corpses of guardsmen, slain in the line of duty and shipped to his offices for autopsy. To confuse the investigation, McMorning is falsifying paperwork pertaining to the body's deliveries, claiming he never took possession of them. His feigned anger at the incompetence of others within the guild has served him well, for now. He knows his next task is to select a scapegoat upon which to pin the disappearances before his ruse is discovered. To that end, he is trying to decide which of the investigators one of his autopsies should visit for a spell. Bound, body and soul, to the man who killed her, Molly Squidpidge is a walking contradiction. Molly's devotion to and revulsion of Seamus are constantly conflicting emotions, threatening to overwhelm her when her master demands her to act. Through the increasingly hazy memories Molly has of being alive, she can vaguely recall her murder at his hands, followed soon after by the cold embrace of the grave. Seamus summoning her back from the afterlife, the first time was anything but gentle. She remembers her bouts of bloody coughing, testament to a resurrection gone horribly wrong. Molly's second resurrection was gentler, having been facilitated by the Gorgon's tear, then in Seamus's possession. He knew she had some connection to the mysterious gem and swore to get his money's worth from her the second time around. Most of the time, Molly serves as little more than a glorified porter. Most of the time, Molly serves as little more than a glorified porter, bearing the raving head of Philip Tombers in event it may yield a nugget of information Seamus requires. She also bears Seamus's verbal haranguing with fragile poise, frequently breaking into uncontrollable tears. Seamus often reminds her she is an awful mess, far different from how beautiful she had been when they first met. For her part, Molly suffers his jabs, unable to run away, wondering how long before she goes completely mad. Recently, Molly has been exhibiting a strange affinity for the more bizarre undead she comes across. Oddities, such as the horrifying creatures McMorning keeps locked in his laboratories, willingly follow her orders, as if some unspoken bond between them exists. While Seamus tries to use Molly's gift to his advantage, she has found a degree of freedom she thought she would never have again, and intends on using it to its fullest. Perhaps even escaping the macabre purgatory Seamus has consigned her to.
Hey everyone, it's Alex, one more time. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Do you want to stay in touch? We'd love to hear from you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoulStoryPod. The cast is on Twitter as well. You can find Moose at Moosifo, Spencer at SpareBearTheMeek, Bam Bam at HotBam with three M's, Logan at KOTL of the Light, and you can find me, your Fate Master, at Roll for Alex.